we're moving to England now and 100 years later, but people are still pretty sure that the end of the world is imminent. Uh, <laughs> same, <laughs> same story. Um, so in early modern England, um, prophecy sort of could be broadly defined as a divinely inspired utterance which usually involved the oral expounding or explication of scripture. By the time you get to the mid-17th century, um, amongst more kind of radical, independent religious groups, those heralded as prophets frequently fell into increasingly more dramatic ecstatic trances and were regarded as a direct channel for God's voice on earth. A great number of these prophecies were delivered by women, who, as we've discussed, were kind of seen as the perfect empty vessel for this kind of... Uh, <laughs> taking over by God. Um, and a great number of them were recorded and printed during the turbulent years of the Civil War. Again, I think there's a relationship there between troubled times and prophecy. So I'd like to discuss one of these prophetic publications today, The Exceeding Riches of Grace, which was first published in 1647. The Exceeding Riches documents the experiences of Sarah White, who was a young Londoner, in fact, she was only 16 at uh, the time of the events described in the book, and she was the daughter of an exchequer official in London. The text describes White's troubled youth, in which she considered herself damned, and as a result, frequently attempted suicide. We're told that she tried to kill herself by drowning, strangling, stabbing, seeking to beat out her brains, wretchedly bruising and wounding herself. It's a really cheerful tale. By April, she's at the very depths of her sort of spiritual turmoil and a bodily weakness brought on by these frequent attempts to kill herself. We're told that she is shattered to pieces, so weary of her life and of herself and of everything. But on April 6th, she fell into a deep sleep, or trance, as they call it in the book, which lasted for four days. When she awoke, White had become filled with a sense of God's forgiveness and grace. She no longer thought she was damned. And, as a result of her trance, she had become capable of delivering eloquent messages, or soliloquies, as they're called in the text, about God's grace and his forgiveness. The Exceeding Riches, then, is an account of White's own descriptions of her religious experiences, and it also records the spiritual messages and guidance that she gave in answer to a string of visitors who came to question and interrogate her or seek her, seek her advice. Um, these soliloquies she delivers so that others might hear what wonders God hath shown to her soul. The English short title catalogue lists the volume's author as Henry Jesse, who was a nonconformist minister in London at the time and was likely White's pastor in Southwark. However, the title page of The Exceeding Riches doesn't label Jesse as its author or its writer. Instead, Jesse is consistently referred to as White's relator. And he himself suggests that his role here is simply to relate White's words to the reader. So um, critics have done wonderful work on prophecy from this period, uh, using texts like the exceeding riches to focus on the lives, the words, the messages of female prophets like Sarah White, the women behind the prophecies. Um, yeah, I think we should also acknowledge the extent to which these women's voices, like Sarah White's, are often only surviving in a mediated or related form. In a sense, I think, edited by relators like Henry Jesse. And this is what this paper will look at, um, discussing Henry Jesse's role here as a relator editor of the prophet Sarah White. Of course, editor is a problematic term for this period, um, it did not really come to describe one who prepares the literary work by selecting, revising, and arranging until 
early 18th century. And Jesse would have been unlikely to associate himself as an editor of White. Uh, so it is anachronistic, but I found it helpful to think of him in this way, particularly when it allows us to consider his relationship to White's text through lenses of modern editorial theory. Helps to remind me of the often mediated, edited nature of the female religious voice in this period, related, recorded, annotated by men, whilst allowing me to examine the complexities of authority present within prophetic texts like The Exceeding Riches. So, to turn to The Exceeding Riches, in his preface, which sounds like it's a lot longer than Melchior's was, um, Jesse likens White's words to valuable treasure. He writes, These precious pearls, these hidden mysteries of the treasury of the glorious gospel, being gathered and stored up together by the relator. According to Jesse, the publication of these precious pearls is necessary, since it is unleashed they should be hid and hoarded up for a few to enjoy in private. His metaphors here are asserting, I think, the precious value of White's words. They're worth us listening to. Um, but it's also associating Jesse's role here with very lofty Christian notions of wealth distribution and sharing. It's his job to make sure these pearls aren't kept hidden away. Furthermore, I think, um, pearls and treasure represent fixed physical objects. They hold their value. They're hard to alter. And thus, the female prophet's words here are imagined as permanent items that can be collected from the author and passed to the reader without any alteration or diminishment in their value. Indeed, Jesse seems really eager to convince readers that his edition will accurately match White's original utterances. Her pearls of scriptural wisdom will remain unchanged in that transference from her to him to us. We don't have to be there hearing her speak to understand them. Thus, in his introduction to the volume, Jesse spends a long time explaining how his text came about, that it's based on the testimony, quite a legalistic term, of White's mother and her maid, and on a direct recording of White's speech, an editor citing his sources there. Um, Jesse writes, of the expressions from page 35 to the end of the book, the relator was with them an ear witness, generally. A great part of nine leaves was taken by him from the relation of them, or one of them, being writ as they spake verbatim. Some of the repetitions therein being taken with the rest, so passed to the press with rest, which now the relator likes not, wishing they had been forborne. In this passage then, Jesse is asserting a simple, simultaneous composition of both texts. He's claiming that he writ as they spake, suggesting that his written edition was born at the same moment that it was created orally by White. The printed account is proclaimed to be a word-for-word -word account which even faithfully maintains those repetitions, and there are a lot of them, this kind of ecstatic style, where she sort of repeats phrases over and over that he likes not, but has to include to be accurate. Jesse wants us to know that this is White's authentic voice, and he does not want us to confuse her words with his, particularly not those ugly, repetitive phrases he, he would have left out. The typesetting of the initial 1647 edition of The Exceeding Riches works to to distinguish between Jesse's editorial text and White's words. So Jesse's text is in kind of ordinary Roman type, and then all of White's direct quotes are in italics. And this ability to clearly differentiate between the two, I think, was obviously considered to be so important that in the next edition, published in 1648, um, these typographic strategies are enhanced. Now the marginal notes 
are distinguished from the text by the insertion of a black vertical line. They seem to be separated even, even further from her, her voice. Of course, as it must be striking everyone here, as it struck me when I read Sarah White for the first time, it really must have been impossible for Jesse to have actually accurately recorded every word she said. He admits that she was oft speaking very low, it was unpredictable, she was talking to herself. Um, yeah, I think our, our modern suspicions about this sort of accurate representation of what she said do not necessarily negate Jessie's claims to be an authentic relator. In her wonderful study of memory in medieval culture, Mary Carruthers ex has explained that the Middle Ages and then into the early modern period, there was a pri privileging of memoria ad res over memoria ad verba i.e. that the memory for things could in a way be more beneficial than a memory for word-for-word -word accuracy. That actually recalling the sense and ideas of something and then refashioning it could actually be a more valuable or moral exercise than simply rote iteration. Thus, um, perhaps the way in which Jesse recounts White's text may not have struck his early modern readers as dishonest but as an acceptable and perhaps even moral worthy, a good exercise in editorial approach, which did not threaten to overwrite the authorship of White herself. Of course, as we know, <laughs> that an addition to be loyal to an author's composition has been a guiding principle in recent editorial approaches, figures such as W.W. W. Gregg, Fredson Bauer, Tansell, in a rationale of textual criticism, Tansell has famously suggested that a good editor should attempt to ascertain what the producer of a document intended. And perhaps in Henry Jesse, we can see a prototype Tansell code of author-centric editorial conduct, putting the intentions of White at the heart of his edition. Yet, as we also know, modern editorial theory warns us against this, and against the dangers of passively accepting the exceeding riches as an addition that can successfully, dutifully reflect the intentions and voice of its author. Peter Schillingsberg has suggested that additions claiming to recreate author's intentions are basically dishonest. Paul Egger agrees that interpretation is unavoidable for the editor, the decision of which readings to gloss is itself an intervention based on a notion of what is important in the text. And we do well to remember this when reading The Exceeding Riches. At the start of the text, Jesse includes a table of the places of Holy Scripture that in this book are opened, illustrated and applied. It goes on for nearly 10 pages, in which scriptural passages are listed along with page numbers where he thinks in White's text she's referring to these scriptural passages. He also adds cross-references within White's text in parentheses, in the margin and as footnotes. And yet, as he freely admits, when she spoke, White neither cited chapter nor verse herself, but recited the words without looking in a book. Thus, these scriptural cross-references are simply reflecting Jesse's own notion of what is important. In one of my favourite sections, um, Jesse suggests that the scripture White is, quoted, White is quoting from is from the Greek rather than the English translation of the Bible, though she be no Grecian. So she never knew Greek, <laughs> she can never speak Greek, couldn't read Greek, um, and now she's able to cite scripture in Greek. And of course, this is meant to be further evidence that she's getting these messages from God. If she couldn't do it before and now she can, this is kind of God's inspiration. But also, crucially, in these circumstances, it's Jesse who can step in and assume the role of identifying and explaining these moments on her behalf. 
Moments like this, I think, remind us that the exceeding riches is an interpretation, a male intellectualizing interpretation of the female religious voice. In many ways, White's words belong more to their male editor here, who shapes them with his own comments and cross-references. And there are so many, and they grow across subsequent editions. I've done a rough count, and in that first 1647 edition, there are around 65 marginal notes and footnotes. In the 1648 edition, there are over 400. So <laughs> he keeps growing them. And those references uh, are to nearly 600 different biblical verses. And this is in a text that's less than 200 pages long. So Jesse claims that this edition, these extra notes, are for better satisfaction to many. But clearly, the effectiveness and satisfaction that can be gained from these depends upon the audience's biblical knowledge and whether they're willing to tackle all of these citations and take them up on, on every reference. Indeed, as textual critics like Jerome McGann have said, text producers like Jesse should never expect a purely responsive act of reading, an act which will decode the transmission in precisely the way the sender desires. This awareness has led McGann and other more modern editorial scholars to regard literary texts as inherently unstable objects belonging to no one and which are forever susceptible to unique and ultimately uncontrollable interpretations and iterations. And I think at points in the exceeding riches, we do get the impression that Henry Jesse does not have a completely firm grip upon White's text here. Her words are somewhat unruly, and they do disrupt the aura of precision and completeness, the verbatim word-for-word account Jesse attempts to establish for his edition. So in his opening preface to the text, Jesse describes the creative timeline of White's text, how it gets here in our hands. He explains that on the 27th of April, White's text might be contained in two sheets or three, which Jesse, expecting that the frail White would die within a few days, remember she was very physically frail from all her suicide attempts, etc. So he took those two sheets or three to the press for printing. But she didn't die. <laughs> and as Jesse explains, one day after another was occasion of enlarging her text. She kept on speaking. Thus we imagine White's text as a fluid, growing structure, which reflected the unpredictable extension of White's own body, both of which refused to conveniently conform to Jesse's expectations of what she would do and also the requirements, the mechanisms of the 17th century printing press. Elsewhere in the text, Jesse admits that more heavenly expressions she uttered than those related brokenly in this edition. He wasn't always there when she was speaking. And thus we become aware that the printed edition we have is unwhole and that an unknowable extra text exists beyond the confines of these pages, beyond the reach of the reader and of Jesse, the relator. Thus, Jesse is not the sole keeper and controller of White's words. And importantly, I think few in the 17th century would have thought he was either. By way of illustration, I'd just like to briefly mention a case in 1654, a few years after The Exceeding Riches was published. Another female prophet, perhaps the most famous from this period, Anna Trapnell, was put on trial for the radical ideas she expressed during a trance at Whitehall. As with White, Trapnell's ecstatic utterances were recorded by a relator, who was possibly Henry Jesse, we're not sure, but they moved in similar circles and the language is quite similar. Anyway, whoever did, the relator recorded them and they were published in a book entitled The Cry of a Stone. 
We are told in Trapnell's own account of her trial in 1654 that a copy of the cry of a stone was reached out to her by the judge, and she was asked, what say you to that book? Will you own it? Is it yours? Trapnell was imprisoned and punished, and it appears that the printed record of her prophecies was used as part of the evidence to condemn her. Hundreds of years later, we in this room and textual critics like McGann might take issue with that judge's question, is it yours? We might query whether a single edited, related text could truly embody authorial intention or represent the whole work and views and characters of an author. And yet, in 1654, Anna Trapnell was judged on precisely that basis. Despite their male relators, 17th century women like White and Trapnell could and would be held directly responsible for these texts. So, to conclude, um, it is clearly inadequate, I think, to regard Jesse simply as an author of The Exceeding Riches. He does not assume a creative authorial stance here, but presents himself as a neutral relator. Nevertheless, it is also clearly inadequate to take Jesse at his word here and simply to accept him as a neutral channel for Sarah White's voice. Just think of all those <laughs> marginal glosses. And we're kind of taught to think now that perhaps an edition is always the editor's text. And Jesse's attempts to control our radial reading seem an attempt to stamp his authority upon her voice. Yet I think to suggest that Jesse comes to control our interpretation or to overwrite White's words is to accord no agency to readers, particularly readers today where we're interested in getting back to that woman's voice. It's also to forget our consciousness of an unrecorded text that lies beyond the printed page and in a sense will always belong to Sarah White or those who came to listen to her. And it is also, I think, to ignore the ways in which prophetic women were held directly accountable for their texts in the 17th century, as the example of Anna Trapnell shows. Prophecy, then, is a genre in which pushes and pulls of authorial agency are writ particularly large, between the reader, the speaker, the relator. And perhaps this is because, by its very nature, prophecy embodies another, greater, yet more uncanny authorial conflict, where a woman is voicing the voice of God, the ultimate <laughs> editor decision. Um, so today I'd be interested in hearing from you guys about other women's texts or genres other than prophecy that you've studied in which you sense that your reading is being altered or mediated by an editorial presence. What does it mean for the text and what does it mean for you as a reader, as a critic, or maybe even as an editor interested primarily in the female voice? In a critical dawn where we are so hyper-aware of issues surrounding editorial principles and practice, I believe that we cannot fail to ignore the ways in which the voices of the Reformation women we study also survive in related or edited forms. Thank you. Thank you.